Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6, and then uh, page 875, the back of the red hymnal for catechism lesson. We'll read the answers together after we read God's word. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 7. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. He gives it to us, his people, for our good. Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 79. Questions 79 through 81. We'll read the answers together. Question 79 then. Which is the tenth commandment? The tenth commandment is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. What is required in the tenth commandment? The tenth commandment requireth full contentment with our own condition with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. What is forbidden in the 10th commandment? The 10th commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Parents know that sometimes it is the specifying of a rule that can awaken in, in a child the very thought uh, to, to do the thing that, that you're specifying they don't do. And there's something about seeing the wet paint sign 
on a wall that makes you think maybe you should just go up and, and, and just run your finger over it to see if the paint is still wet when you wouldn't have had that thought uh, anyways. So you get a, a new washing machine or something in, in the house and you bring the young kids over and say, you can't touch this, you can't do this, you've got to make sure that you, know, you don't accidentally bump this or that and then all of a sudden you realize maybe I've given them an, an idea uh, that, that I shouldn't have. You know, interesting, in, in Romans chapter 7, as the Apostle Paul is uh, talking about the law of God and names specifically the, the 10th commandment, and that this 10th commandment, do not covet, which uh, has a, a bit of a different flavor, doesn't it, than, than the previous nine, or at least most of them, in that it, it particularly goes to, to inward things right in the explicit naming of it. Do not covet. And uh, the Apostle Paul says that this produced in him all kinds of covetousness. The, the naming of this commandment in the law awakened these things in him. As I was thinking about it th- this week, there are certainly more than this, but probably three common sources of coveting in our sinful flesh. The first one is selfishness, that, that we, in uh, our sinful, fallen nature, we naturally make things revolve around ourselves or we want them to or we imagine that we really are at the center of everything and that everything in our lives and perhaps everything in the world in reality ought to exist for ourselves. It ought to be for us personally. Selfishness makes us covet because when we assign to ourselves a level of importance that we ought not, then we can convince ourselves that we deserve this or we should have that. Second uh, common source of of coveting is pursuing fleeting earthly pleasures. When we convince ourselves that this life is basically about uh, experiencing pleasure, then we covet because we we want more and more, and, and, and the insatiable lusts of the flesh are awakened, and we will never have enough. The last common source of uh, coveting in our sinful flesh that we'll consider tonight is really fear. We fear that at some point we won't have enough in our lives. We, we fear that uh, we will run out of resources. We fear that we will have to suffer because we won't be afforded this comfort or, or that. And so we want something that we don't have. We want something that another does. Selfishness, pleasure, fear. That commandment, uh, do not covet, in this mysterious way, awakens in us all of these feelings. We also see, interestingly, how the gospel of Christ and the salvation that we have in him rewires us in in these exact three ways, in other ways too, but the gospel of Christ transforms us from our selfishness and and calls us to something different. Uh, The gospel of Christ calls us to put away earthly lusts and pursue our satisfaction in, in God. The gospel of Christ tells us, do not fear, for God is your God in Jesus Christ, and he has given you hope beyond this world. He he has given you eternal life. He has uh, 
fitted you for a kingdom that will not be shaken, that will not fade away. So it is in this beautifully stark way, clear way, it is our salvation in Christ to which we look as we consider our obedience to this 10th commandment. So first we'll consider coveting and selfishness, coveting and selfishness. Our passage in Hebrews 13 begins by saying, let brotherly love continue. Uh, This brotherly love that we're called to, we're very familiar, you'll know it. We've all heard preachers talk about it, that Greek word Philadelphia, brotherly love. And brotherhood is rooted in uh, our common inheritance in the kingdom that is mentioned at the end of chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are to be grateful for that. So it's the, the enduring nature of the kingdom. And there in chapter 12, there is juxtaposition with the earthly kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament, earthly Israel that uh, passed away and was fulfilled in Christ. And now uh, to be an Israelite, to be a person of the covenant is to be joined to Christ and uh, our citizenship is with the heavenly Jerusalem. And so juxtaposed uh, with the earthly kingdom that passed into a more permanent state in Christ. But it's enduring. It will never fade away. It will last forever. Because of that, we are to be grateful. Since we have this kingdom that cannot be shaken. So we, we need to keep central to this call to brotherly love that we, uh, as, a, as a common inheritance, partake in a kingdom that will not fade away, a kingdom that will not be shaken. Something else to notice in that verse. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. So it's, it's not just that the kingdom is unfading, that the kingdom is eternal that we have in, in our salvation in Christ, but it's that we have received it. We have received this kingdom. We did not win this kingdom. We did not take up arms and go and exercise victory and dominion so that we could claim it for ourselves. We have received this kingdom by God's grace. So the author to Hebrews to the Hebrews says, let us be grateful. Let us have gratitude. Why? Because we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In other words, it will withstand the shaking of Judgment Day. There in Hebrews 12, Judgment Day, the second coming of our Lord, is visualized as a a shaking. And all that is not rooted, all that is not firmly planted, will fade away. It will be gone. But that which will endure is the kingdom of Christ. And we are also grateful because this is a kingdom that we have received. So it's what we possess in Christ that feeds our gratitude and and then also that colors our love. If we have a collective gratitude, if we all uh, look to our God and what he has done to us in Jesus Christ, then we are grateful for this kingdom that we have received that cannot be shaken. What will happen? We will have brotherly love. It will continue. If you have your salvation in Christ the center of your mind in your interactions with one another, 
brotherly love will continue. We realize that because of our salvation, we already have the best thing we could possibly possess. That is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Uh, one One of my favorite Puritan authors, he has this sermon. It's called Christ is Best. Jesus Christ is best. And that's a reference to Philippians chapter 1, where there the Apostle Paul says, My eager expectation and hope that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The greatest joy that I will have is to be reunited uh, with my Savior, to see Him. So brotherly love will continue as we realize we have this collective mutual realization that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We will not be filled with covetousness because the greatest possession is Christ. Our brotherly love is, since it's rooted in this kingdom, this kingdom of Christ, is also to be modeled after the selflessness of the Savior. It is His kingdom. He is the King. We are subjects in it. And how foolish would it be if we as His subjects were to say, well, the King lived that way. And how did He live? Selflessly, sacrificially, not exploiting His position for His own gain, but living for the good of his people. So that the subjects say, well, the king lived that way, but we, the commoners, the peasants, the servants, uh, we can be filled with selfishness. We can be filled with desires that are centered around ourselves. No, the, the, the brotherly love that we're called to is to be modeled after the selflessness of the king. Staying with Philippians there, Philippians 1, to live as Christ, to die as gain, Christ is best. We model uh, this love after the selflessness of the Savior, of course, seen in Philippians 2. How did Christ live? Paul says, have this mind uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What did he do? He emptied himself. He did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited, to be held on to. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He was born under the law. He went to the shameful and bitter death of the cross that we might be reconciled to God. Let brotherly love continue that is modeled after the selflessness of the king. Brotherly love is then given two expressions in Hebrews chapter 13. Hospitality and empathy. Uh, Greedy, covetous people cannot take joy in hospitality. Why? Because it is costly. Now, uh, we have some difficulty connecting to the hospitality of this world, this world of the audience of the Hebrews, but we, we can still uh, use a lot of the, these same principles in the way that we would show generosity, the way that we welcome people into our homes, share with them, share meals with them. It's an important Christian practice, and it is costly. My wife is, uh, is not here to defend herself. She's very good at hospitality. And uh, when we're getting ready to have some people over, uh, she gives me the, the grocery list, and, uh, and I tend to, to count the nickels and dimes a little bit more, you might say. 
And I start to look at all the things that she needs because she's really good at making a, a meal for everyone. And I can feel the, the greed, the materialism welling up in my heart. And I need to remind myself that this is a good Christian practice. Greedy and covetous people cannot take joy in hospitality because you're giving out of the goodness of your heart to share an experience with your brothers and sisters. What you benefit, the benefit of these things is not quantifiable, is it? The love that we share over a, over a meal or time spent together, these kinds of things. It's costly. He's showing hospitality here. There's an allusion also to, to Abraham who was hospitable to angels and to the pre-incarnate Christ, even in the book of Genesis. But the implication there with the naming of that, the, the author of Hebrews, is that God sees that which you do from a genuine and sincere and selfless heart, and he will bless your efforts being hospitable, being generous. Right? It's not just hospitality, but generosity overall. That is being commended here as well. To, to give and to be generous and giving in ways that don't have a, a quantifiable return. Don't have a, a material return. Do it especially for the good of others. Brotherly love seen in hospitality and generosity. But it's also seen in empathy. And this is really interesting as I was taking this apart this week. That really... Empathy is what's being commended here to the people of God. Covetous uh, people are selfish and do not care to attempt to feel along with others. Because a selfish, a selfish person only cares how he or she feels. So look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Don't just kind of have this realization that, oh yeah, they're, they're undergoing some hard times of difficulty. Think along with them, feel along with them as though you were in prison with them. It's a call to empathy, to feel along with, to share in that emotion with them. The grounding of this is that we are members of the body of Christ. And so the love that, that we are commanded to have for each other is a love that looks at other Christians to see them as members of the same body. And just like when you feel a pain in your body, you just say, I, I hurt. You know, it's, your hand may be what hurts, but you're, you're feeling that pain everywhere. It gets to your brain and the whole thing is an unpleasant experience. Uh, the body of Christ is called to the same kind of thing to understand and to know, to feel along with those who have fallen on difficult times, those in this instance who are, who are being persecuted, those who are being mistreated, those who are suffering intensely. Your heart breaks when you hear stories of what Christians are going through in Afghanistan the last several weeks. It breaks. The gospel changes us from our selfishness through the gratitude of the kingdom and fills our lives with the desire to give rather than take. And even all the way to our own emotions, someone who is selfish is going to say, well, I'm not going to concern myself with being sad or being concerned with others. 
But if you are grateful for a kingdom that you receive that cannot be shaken, your brotherly love will continue. You will be generous. You will be pathetic. You will be hospitable. Because it's modeled after Christ. The gospel then frees us from being self-centered, from being selfish. We look at our Savior and we're transformed to live this way. Secondly, uh, coveting and pleasure. The sin of coveting really in many ways goes beyond envy. We see that in the 10th commandment. It's that it's specifically wanting what belongs to your neighbor. Your neighbor has something and you say, that's what I want. Right? It has a brand new Corvette and you don't just want a Corvette, you want that one. That's the one that you want. We see also in the 10th commandment, do not covet your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's wife. So nowhere does this come to a head more than with desiring someone, a person, for pleasure, who already is married to another. We're dealing here with verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. When your, your mind is filled with desires for someone who is married, and you entertain those thoughts, and you are dwelling on something and someone who in every generality and in every detail cannot be yours. It is such a direct defiance of this commandment to uh, desire or to partake in the sin of adultery that's fueled by covetousness. Marriage, the beauty of marriage, and thinking about it connected to the sovereignty of God, is that God has designed husbands and wives to be joined together, and he has fashioned them for each other in God's sovereign plan. Right? He designed Michelle for me to be my wife. He designed others to be the wives of others. They were designed for one another in the sovereignty of God. That is how he has purposed it. And so to hold marriage in honor, thinking about the sovereignty of God, is to take this view of what God is doing in all of these things to say we need to respect, we need to honor, we need to keep pure all of these things for the glory of God. In verse 4, honor is pushed to the front in the Greek. So there's emphasis there. Honor, uh, marriage. To honor something means to regard it as valuable, as precious, as costly. Look around this world. How much is marriage being regarded as something precious, as something valuable, as something costly, right? It's, it's, a, it's a valuable jewel that can break easily. This goes for those who are in marriages and those who are not. The call to hold marriage in honor. For marriages, of course, can be ruined from without or from within. So those who are married 
are called to hold marriage in honor. And this is truly one of the ways that we will fight against the sin of coveting. The married hold marriage in honor by doing what? By giving themselves to it. You are called to give yourself to your marriage. You are called to take God's commands seriously regarding marriage. You are called to strive to maintain a deep love and commitment to your spouse. Someone who grows embittered, someone who has checked out of a marriage, someone who does not have regard for the emotional state of his wife or her husband, someone who is not sincerely engaging in all of those things, is not holding marriage in honor. It goes beyond just a bare, outward, superficial recognition of saying, yes, I'm married. There is a call to give yourself to it. To seek to grow in love and devotion and commitment to one another. This means to give yourself also to the pursuit of pleasure that God gives to us in marriage. To grow in love and joy and intimacy all of your days. The married are called to hold marriage in honor. The unmarried are called to hold marriage in honor also by seeing it as a good. By respecting the boundaries of marriage. By seeking marriage if they do not believe they have the gift of singleness. Let marriage be held in honor. And secondly, let the marriage bed be undefiled. So this is a, this is a call to seek purity. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, there's a call that uh, no one is to be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. And the point there is that it just was not worth it at all for Esau, right? After that deal was done, he should have realized that what he gave up was far too much for what he got in return. And there's the connection there to uh, sexual immorality. Why? Because it's so temporary. It's so fleeting. It's so empty. It does not fill. It does not satisfy. It does not continue to provide any lasting joy. What you get in return for wandering beyond those boundaries is nothing close to what you give up. So to seek all of these things, what do we need to do? We need to find our blessedness and our satisfaction in God. I was blessed by the reading from Psalm 37 this morning and struck uh, by the extent to which that psalm calls our attention. It throws our attention forward. There is a future for the righteous. There is no future for the wicked. Place your hope in those things. God is giving you eternity. He's giving you life. He's giving you blessedness. So 30, Psalm 37 verse 18. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. 
let marriage, let your life be undefiled. And that will be the desire for those who have their blessedness and satisfaction in God. When Christ is our deepest joy, when Christ is our greatest blessedness, even those pleasures which grab so many in this world will pale in comparison to the Savior. 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. The blessed hope of the Christian, you will see Christ. You will see Him. You will behold Him. Your heart will be filled with joy. Next verse. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone whose hope is centered on seeing Christ the Savior will purify himself as he is pure. Find your joy and satisfaction and blessedness in Christ. That is how you fight the desire in you to chase after the pleasures of this world and to have coveting fill uh, your heart go to battle against that by finding your joy in Christ. Finally, uh, coveting and fear. We often covet because we have a fear of suffering. We have a fear that uh, in the future we will lack something. We say, if only we could have the guarantee of comfort. If only we could have the guarantee that we will always have as much as we need, which is really as much as we want, as much as we think we need then we'll put all of our doubts, all of our unbelief to rest. I remember there was a, uh, I remember this lottery thing several years ago. You see how these things just take hold of people's hearts. And uh, the, the reward was that, not that you get this huge lump sum of money, but that you would get a $1,000 check once a week for the rest of your life. And, of course, what are they trying to appeal to you? This very thing, that we're filled with fear because we think at some point we're not going to have enough. It's going to run out. We may have enough today, and the Scriptures would call us to thank God for that and to see His blessedness and His provision for us, His love for us. But we're filled with this fear. Someday it might run out. Someday God might not provide for us in the ways that He has provided for us up until now. Coveting in this way from a spirit of fear, what's it from? It's from unbelief. And what is it really about? It is about God's word against ours. Well, someday we might not have enough. But what does God say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. So Thomas Manton, in speaking about this, says, Covetousness is rooted in a diffidence and a fear of want. That fear is irrational if we regard what God has said. God will maintain us as long as he has work for us to do. He that is persuaded that God will not leave him will not be much troubled. It's irrational, and it's God's word against yours. I will provide for you for as long as I have work for you to do. He has said that. Men, he goes on, men would have less trouble if they could learn to cast themselves upon God's allowance. 
He says this, if we could depend more, we would crave less. So the solution, when we covet out of fear, is to give yourself to God's promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The comfort of our condition, in other words, is not dependent as much upon what we have, our possessions, our assets, all the things that could provide for us at some point. The comfort that we experience is not so much rooted in that as in God's promise itself. God has told you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in Hebrews 13, it's named there in verse 5. If you give yourself to that promise, then you will have the comfort that flows forth from that promise. If you can depend upon God more, you will crave less. Manton is kind of riffing on this in one of his works. And he says, this promise that God will never leave us or forsake us is applicable to several purposes. To Joshua, it emboldens him against danger. God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Joshua, be strong and courageous. It makes him bold. To Jacob, it makes him patient under crosses. I will never leave you nor forsake you. To Solomon, it quickens him against coldness in God's service. To Israel, it heartens them against enemies. And to all believers, it supports them in both poverty and trial. And he says this, and this is good reason for you to keep this promise in your head and to remind yourself of it and to say it to yourself. This one promise well observed will teach us to live well and die well, for still God is with us. One promise. If you really believe that he will never leave you nor forsake you, you will not be filled with this fear that causes your hearts to be filled with coveting Because you convince yourself that at some point God will stop providing for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That one promise, if you give yourself to it, will teach you to live well and die well. And then the second solution then is to see the one who is your helper. And that's verse 6. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See the one who is your helper. It's not just anyone. I like to think of myself as a a loving, caring, protective father. But I cannot give to my children what God gives to them. I cannot be to them the helper that he can be for them. See the one who is your helper. It's not just someone. It's not just a God. It's not just a powerful being. It is the God. It is the only God. 
the unchanging, the ever-blessed God, majestic in holiness, eternal in glory, the one who created all things and who sustains all things, the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made. I'll bring this to a close as, as I read something from John Newton. says this, The whole creation proclaims that power belongs unto God. Everything that you see, every new day, every turning of the season, ought to remind yourself power belongs to God. He says this, But in nothing will his power be more displayed than in the wonders of his redeeming love. What power is necessary? to raise those who are spiritually dead in sin, to soften the heart of stone, to bring light out of darkness and order out of confusion. How is his power illustrated by the care he takes of all who believe in his name, affording to every one of them seasonable, suitable, sufficient supplies in every time of need, so that his weak, helpless, and opposed people are supported, strengthened, enabled to hold on, to hold out against all the united efforts of the world, sin, and Satan. He saved you. He sustains you. He keeps you in his grip. He tells you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if you give yourself to that promise, then you will see something of the one who is your helper, something true about him, his eternal power, and glory dispensed for you and for your good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you for what you have given to us. Might our contentment be rooted in Jesus Christ and might you teach us to depend upon your promises that you give to us your very many great and precious promises. Might we believe them and live by them in poverty and in trial so that we would live for you always. In Christ's name.